Well, thanks very much, Chris, and uh, I hope you feel somewhat revitalised after your morning tea. Uh, now that we can get back into 1 Corinthians, please do uh, keep that passage open in front of you, as I'm sure you will. And as I do that, let me introduce you to Bill. Uh, fictional Bill, we'll call him. He doesn't really exist, but don't let me stop that. Don't let, don't let uh, stop that from introducing you to him. Bill is a minister of a church in Devonport. Bill's just come back from a pastors' conference. The keynote speaker had been interviewed about his church, and frankly, Bill was bowled over. This church had a thousand plus people at it with a huge staff team, multiple campuses, as they called it, pots of money, very successful outreach programs and some very impressive people going there. The church seemed to be non-stop business executives. They had a federal MP, the curator of the state's art museum, several science academics and even a retired Supreme Court judge. Now all of this, this interview and all of the palaver that went with it, was meant to be very encouraging to Bill and the other delegates. See what the gospel can do, seemed to be the message of this presentation. See what kind of a church the gospel can form. Meanwhile, Bill sat in his office the next day and stared at his computer screen. Half his rosters had holes in them and he had no idea how he was going to fill them. The only young couple he even has at his church have just got off the phone to him to tell him that they're moving to the mainland at the end of the year. He looks at his membership list and to be honest, it's just not that inspiring. It's full of old people, people of limited education, people who are hurting. It's true, he does have a solid core of what you might call together people, but they're also stressed out by all of the ministry that they're doing, that some are beginning to crack under the strain and are even making noises that they either need to step back from their ministry commitments or might actually need to leave altogether. Bill looked out of his office window at his town. There's so much to do. And so many good opportunities. How is he going to reach a town like his with a church like this? He begins to daydream. If only I had a different church, a different group of people to work with, I could do so much. As he drags himself back to his rosters, he begins to wonder to himself whether the keynote speaker has any assistant minister jobs going. Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25, Paul has just finished a very counterintuitive argument that the cross is the ultimate in wisdom and that in apparent stupidity, God is at his strongest. How is he going to back that argument up? Well, in verses 26 to 31, he backs that point up by pointing to the make-up of the Corinthian church and effectively insulting it. Not only is the message of the cross unimpressive, so according to Paul are many of its recipients. It actually turns out that the church in Corinth is not really that different to Bill's church. It has lots of average slash needy people with a smattering of exceptions. 
But far from this being a disadvantage or an accident, Paul again says that this is a deliberate strategy on God's behalf to demonstrate the power of the cross. In the Gospel, God declares once for all that humans are powerless and need him for rescue. How is, that going to rub in? How is he going to rub that in? Well, by picking the most obviously powerless people to rescue so that no one who ever does get saved could ever boast that they've done it themselves. How does God want to rub in that he alone is the king in salvation by picking those people who most obviously need saving so no one who ever does get saved could ever kid themselves into thinking that they deserve it or earned it themselves. The foolish gospel forms a foolish church and that's no accident. Rather, it is actually another divine masterstroke. And once I think the church in Corinth gets that and once Bill's church gets that and my church gets that and your church gets that, we'll actually see that the church's foolishness, if I can put it like that, is actually no drawback but actually a great asset. This morning we looked at the foolish gospel. Now we're looking at the foolish church and again I've got just two points. First of all, we're going to look at the makeup of the church in Corinth which we're going to call St. Averages, Corinth. And then secondly, why on earth did God choose such unimpressive people? So first of all, St. Averages, Corinth. Let's take a seat in the back pew of one of their meetings. Now you could never accuse Paul, I don't think, of being a flatterer. He wants to convince the Corinthians that God is glorified in foolishness and weakness and so he points to them as proof that his plan is working perfectly. Look there at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. Generally, it would seem like the church in Corinth is not a terribly impressive bunch. Generally, they're not wise. That is, they're not intelligent or, or well-educated. Generally, they're not influential. They're not powerful. The movers and shakers, the opinion makers. They're not of noble birth. They don't come from great families. And I think that's actually true for most churches today, isn't it? Most churches are made up of normal, unimpressive people like you and me. Now, that's not always true. The church that my wife and I uh, used to go to uh, when we were living in Sydney was a place called Church by the Bridge in a suburb called Kirribilli. Now, I don't know if you know Sydney terribly well or not, um, but Kirribilli is a very fancy, rather snooty suburb um, right on the harbour. It's called Church by the Bridge for a reason. You walk out the front door of the church uh, building and there is the Sydney Harbour Bridge, or rather there are the pylons for it, and you look to your left and there's the bridge in all its glory and the Opera House and uh, Bradfield Park and the harbour, and it's just stunning, and the rents go with it. It's not a cheap place to live. And as a result, Church by the Bridge attracted a certain type of clientele. I don't know how else to describe them, but as I walked in as a lowly student minister, I couldn't help looking around and thinking, I appear to have stumbled into the church for the beautiful people. And it was full of people who weren't like this. It was actually full of wise people, PhDs. It was full of influential people, hedge fund managers, 
I had no idea what a hedge fund manager was until I went there. In fact, I'm still not quite sure. A hedge fund manager was me with a set of clippers. <laughs> Partners in law firms. We even had Kevin Rudd come to visit us one day while he was Prime Minister. The, uh, the federal police came in and scoured the place. We had no idea he was rolling up and, uh, and they told us that he was coming in and... Uh, and then, lo and behold, about 10 minutes later, he came in and my friend, Naomi, who was a bit, well, not starstruck, she was just a bit kind of, what on earth is going on here? She was filling out the name tags on the door and she didn't know what to call him. So she said, do I write Prime Minister? And she said, uh, name, please? <laughs> and to his credit, he just said, Kevin. It had wise people, it had influential people, it even had noble birth people. I don't know what the equivalent of noble birth in even Stevens Australia is, but we did actually have the son of the CEO of Woolworths. I suppose that's as close you get to noble birth in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, CBTB didn't look necessarily a lot like St Average's Corinth. But I think that's the exception, not the rule. Let me tell you about the church of which I'm currently the lead pastor, CRCK, down in Kingston. They won't mind if they ever see this video of me saying that we are the least hip church imaginable. We've got lots of old couples. We've got lots of tradies. We've got lots of migrants. We've got lots of single mums. Let me just introduce you to my Bible study as they sit around in a circle in my living room. On my left, there is a builder and then a child carer and a truck driver, and a bookkeeper, and a lady who works at Big W, and a scientist and a teacher. It's a bit of a mix. But I think CRCK is more like most churches than my old church up in Sydney was. We've got a few exceptions, but by and large, we're an ordinary, unimpressive bunch. Abraham Lincoln once famously said this, the Lord prefers common-looking people. That's the reason he makes so many of them. <laughs> well, I think you could say the same thing about ordinary people, couldn't you? Churches are just full of ordinary people. And yet we often wish we were, don't we? We wish we weren't so unfashionable or so ordinary. We actually think our ordinariness is a real barrier to evangelism and credibility. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote the screw tape letters. Many of you will have read it. If you haven't, please do. If you don't know what the screw tape letters are, they are a fictional collection of letters from a senior devil to a junior devil, instructing the junior devil on how to tempt his victim. And screw tape, the senior le uh, devil, says this to his protege, Wormwood. One of our great allies at the present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite hidden from these humans. All your patience sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbours whom he has so far tried to avoid. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbours. 
make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbours sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. Well, doesn't that ring true for some of us some of the time? No, we want impressive churches. If you're a kid at school or you've got kids at school, I bet you they wish that some of the popular kids were also Christians because that would give you or them some more credibility. Or have you ever noticed when you see a famous person on TV and they seem to be a particularly good egg, do you ever think to yourself, I wonder if they're a Christian? Gosh, I hope so. And not just, I really hope so, so they're going to heaven and not to hell, but gosh, wouldn't it make us look great if he was a Christian, if she was a believer? That's something I could talk about work the next day. Or we look at our service and we wished it was just that little bit more polished, that the Bible reader didn't keep tripping over their words, that the website wasn't quite so bad. Not that your website's bad, but you mentioned the website, that you'd upgraded it. My website. We didn't have a website when I got to church. But God has told us that in his wisdom, he's deliberately made churches look foolish and unimpressive. It's not just that we communicate a foolish message, but it's also one that largely only seems to attract fools. Why? Well, he goes on to explain that in this second section. Why does God choose such unimpressive people? Well, I think it's simply this, and this is really just what the rest of this passage says. Two reasons. First of all, he chooses unimpressive people because it shames the strong. And secondly, he chooses unimpressive people because it kills boasting. The first reason is that it shames the strong. Look with me at verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You see, the very starting point for Paul is that people are saved not because of anything to do with us, but because of something to do with God, whether, we, whether, uh, whether they choose them or not. God, is the, God chose the foolish things of the world. That language of choosing is used again in verse, in verse 26, isn't it? Think of what you were when some of you were called. It's to those whom God has called, verse 24, that the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. Basically, to be saved, you have to be chosen by God. And God's choice is not based on anything to do with you, but only on his electing will. That's why we say salvation is by grace. It's nothing to do with the merit or the loveliness of the person saved, just God's merciful selection. And yet we say that it has nothing to do with the individual person saved, but that's not quite right, is it? Because when you look through the Bible, God does seem to have a particular bias towards a particular type of person. The weak. God in the Bible seems to deliberately favour the weak over the strong. Although anyone who is saved is saved by grace, God does seem to dispense his grace to the weak 
more than he does to the strong. I don't think it's just Paul who says this. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Or James, in chapter 2, verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? God picks the weak. Now, why does he do it? Well, we've already said it, to shame the strong. I want you to imagine a, a coach at a school uh, whose job it is to pick the football team. And all the football team rush up to the notice board on Friday afternoon to see who's made it in for Saturday or Sunday's game. Now imagine that one day everyone stands around the, uh, the, the notice board on Friday and they're absolutely aghast. Why? Because there's not one single decent player on the list It's all of the terrible players on there. Now why on earth would a coach post a team only made up of deadbeat players and leave all his stars off? Why would I get a Guernsey and other people wouldn't? Well what if if it made no sense? I mean that would seem to make no sense if you actually wanted to win the game and winning the game hinged on the quality of the team. But what if the situation behind all of that was this? The really good players were no longer coming to training and they were treating the coach with contempt. And they were doing so because they were confident that they were so good that the coach would pick them anyway, that he'd have to. Because if he didn't, the team would lose. But what if whether the team won or lost actually had nothing to do with the quality of the players? What if it was actually the fact that the coach was so good that whether the team won or lost had nothing to do with the players but the quality of the coaching? And the coach wanted to make a point on this Friday afternoon to his, that, that, that particular point to his star but lazy players. Well, in that case, Picking all the dud players would actually make perfect sense, wouldn't it? Whether we win or lose, guys, on the weekend actually has nothing to do with your skills. I am such a good coach, I can win with anyone, even the bottom 18. Well, I think that's what's happening here with God. He wants to make it crystal clear to the wise, to the well-born, to the powerful, that he doesn't need them to be on his team to win. He wants to shame the strong. Now let's actually pause on that fact just for a moment before we go on. Let's face it, this is not actually a terribly flattering description of church, is it? I mean, how would you like to be described like this in your church newsletter or by a visiting preacher? It's lovely to see you all here today. I'm really delighted to be here at St Average's Devonport. You all look more or less a very unimpressive bunch. I was talking to a very friendly person out the front there in the foyer who frankly didn't seem that intelligent. Here's another person who said hello to me who clearly is uneducated and quite possibly doesn't have a job. Now, would I be welcomed as a preacher there? Well, no, and rightly so, because that's just downright rude. But this is not me saying this about us. This is God saying this about us. You see, I think 
It's so easy for us to pay lip service to grace, isn't it? But when the rubber hits the road, we get our backs up. We say, isn't it wonderful that salvation is only by grace? And we all nod. Maybe we even get a little bit of a pew, what I like to call the pew moo. Have you ever heard the pew moo? Mmm. We're all saved by grace. Up and down go their heads. Mmm. Isn't that wonderful? But it gets harder to agree with when you actually start to get a little bit more specific about the degrees of grace, doesn't it? Isn't it wonderful that salvation is only by grace? Mmm. Mmm. Isn't it wonderful that God chooses idiots like you? Total losers such as yourself. Complete nobodies like your wife. Well, hang on a minute. I'm not that much of a loser. It's easy to pay lip service to grace, isn't it? But when it gets fleshed out for us in the specifics, it's much harder for us to take. We'd much rather hold on to some hope that God chose me. Because even if I wasn't one of his star players, I could at least kick a ball. But God won't have a bar of it. Christian, he chose you because he chose you. And according to God here, chances are everyone in this room, on average, is below average, not above. God chooses the weak. So we'd better get used to the fact that we're weak. That's the first reason he chooses the weak, to shame the strong. But the second is to kill boasting. Look there in verses 28 to 31. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He doesn't just want to shame those people he doesn't choose. He also wants to humble those people he does choose. He chose the lowly things so that no one may boast before him. It's there in verse 27. Let no one, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 31. He chose the weak to kill any chance that we have for boasting. Now, how does that work? Well, let me give you another illustration, again, based in schools. Um, when I lived up in Sydney, I learned about this thing that I don't think we have in Tasmania um, called selective schools, so selective state schools. When I went to Deloraine Primary... Um, no one had to select me to go there. I didn't have to sit an entrance exam. I just needed to live nearby and I could go there. And of course in New South Wales and other states of Australia there are schools like that as well. But they also have selective schools which even though they're not private, they're public, you need to sit an entrance exam to show that you're clever enough to be sort of worth choosing to go there. Now understandably these selective schools often... Uh, top the ranks when it comes to HSC marks at the end of the year. And understandably, selective schools often market themselves on this basis. Look what good quality students we pump out here at North Sydney Girls or whatever. Now that may be true, but you can see one of the holes in the logic, can't you? Well, of course you pump out good students. They were good before they got there. You picked the pick of the bunch. Of course they did well. In fact, they may have actually done just as well if they went to an ordinary comprehensive school. Now, how would you ever be able to tell for sure whether or not a selective school's teaching was really as good as it said it was? Well, you'd really get them to put their money where their mouth was, wouldn't you? You'd still make them selective, 
But rather than take the top 10%, you get them to take the bottom 10%. If they can select them and make world beaters out of them, then you can be jolly sure that it's nothing to do with the students that makes their marks so boastworthy, but everything to do with the teachers. Well, it's the same with God. If God only ever called the strong, those looking on and the strong themselves might be tempted to think that God chose them because of their strength and hence that they had something to boast in. But so to make crystal clear that that's not the case, that any glory for their salvation belongs to God only, he chooses those whom it would never occur to that God chose them because of something in themselves. He chooses the weak. You see, once God's done that, convinced people of what salvation is not because of themselves, it's only then that God can tell people what salvation is because of. Jesus. Look at verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. It's because of Jesus that we can know God. Where all earthly wisdom has failed to find him or philosophy or law or religion, Jesus became for us wisdom from God, the way to know him. And it's in knowing God through Jesus that we get something far better than being wise or influential or noble. We get to be righteous, holy and redeemed. In Christ, our status has now been totally inverted. We who were fools in the eyes of the world are now perfect, precious, wise in the eyes of God. Because the thing that matters most is not how we look in front of people, but how we look in front of God. And friends, if you're in Jesus, wisdom from God, you look pretty smart. Now, does this mean that no clever people, powerful people, noble people ever stand a chance at being saved? Well, no, of course not. As we've already said, Although God does save by grace more of the weak than the strong, anyone he does save, he does save by grace, which means he can save anyone, including the strong. You may have heard of, um, of a woman called Lady Selina Shirley, Countess of Huntington. If you haven't heard of her, I can almost guarantee that you've heard of her protégé, or not so much protégé, as the man that she funded, bankrolled, uh, a guy called George Whitfield. Now, what Lady Selina Shirley may have lacked in preaching skills, she more than made up for in money and power. She was an incredibly influential person in her day. Over 21 years of her patronage of George Whitfield, the great preacher, she was able to pay for the building of over 64 church buildings. She funded numerous missionaries to America and paid for the building of an entire theological college. We sometimes at our church hold a dialogue dinner where we invite people over to a meal and then have a guest speaker come and speak. Well, generally the kind of people we invite to a dialogue dinner are just regular people. They're our neighbours, they're our friends, they're our family members. Well, when Selina Countess of Huntington hired a dialogue dinner and she got George Whitfield in to preach, let's just say that the calibre of people was slightly higher. 
they included, amongst other people, the first ever British Prime Minister. It's estimated that Selina spent £100,000 over the course of her life in gospel work, which may not sound very much until you realise that in today's money that's the equivalent of $137.5 million. Her nickname amongst her friends was Lady Bountiful. She is clearly not one of the weak that Paul is talking about in verse 27. So how on earth did she ever get into the kingdom? Well, it's not a fact that was lost on her. She used to joke that she was saved by an M. Verse 26 doesn't say not any, but not many. How was I saved? I was saved by an M. And what great gospel gains she was able to fund with the riches God gave her. All of that was of God's grace. God saves us irrespective of wealth or poverty, intelligence or stupidity. And praise God, that works both ways. Most of us who are saved will be weak. But some who are saved will be strong. And praise God for them. Does it mean that the strong can never be saved? Absolutely not. Some can because it's all of grace. Does this message mean, however, that as churches we get to be sloppy in the way we present the gospel? That this is almost an excuse for us to delight in our lack of professionalism? That the Bible reader who hasn't rehearsed their Bible reading before Sunday morning and stumbles over all of the names because when they open the passage on Sunday morning realise, ah, it's Genesis 5 again. Oh, it's that genealogy in Matthew. No one will be listening anyway. I'll just stumble along. Does it mean that? Does it mean that your band doesn't have to rehearse? That they don't have to choose the songs carefully? Does it mean that the preacher doesn't need to craft his sermon well? Because isn't God glorified in weakness after all? Wouldn't it be presumptuous, me trying to be strong to do it? Now, if you're tempted to think that, I'm afraid you're mistaken. No, it is important and good to worship in good order. I think increasingly if we're going to reach a younger generation of Tasmanians for for Christ, we're going to need to pay more attention to this. You see, increasingly a younger generation we'll look at how you present your message to assess the value of that message. If your bulletin and your website are badly designed, they won't see it as you being wise about your finances or somehow above mere superficials. You may think about it that way, but they won't. They'll think that you don't care about what you're selling. And considering that what you're selling, inverted commas, is the gospel, the power of God, that's a problem. Now, as Christians, we do need to care about how we present. We do need to try and make our worship and all that we do in good order. But the key to doing that well is that we're to do it, but without relying on it. We're to use good things, 
like high quality music and polished preaching and good websites, but we're not to rely on them. Good production values, as good as they are, won't save anyone. Only the cross can do that. But it is still important to work hard at removing unnecessary blockages from people hearing the gospel. Take, for example, the difference between a minesweeper and a tank. A tank is the big machine with the cannon. I don't need to remind you of that. When you're advancing on a town, you need the cannon to go and blast away at it, to make damage at the ramparts. A minesweeper can't do any of that. A minesweeper doesn't have a gun. It can't cause any damage at all. What a minesweeper can do is get rid of the obstacles in the way of the tank to clear the way for the tank to go through. If you don't have a tank, you've just got a minesweeper, the town still holds. All the mines will be cleared, but there'll be nothing to shoot at it. If you just have a tank... Well, you'll have a very engaged and exciting five minutes before a tank goes on top of a mine and explodes. Well, it's the same with this and the gospel. The gospel is the tank. Only the gospel has the power to fire the shells of salvation to breach the ramparts of a hard human heart. If you don't have the gospel, you'll get nowhere. You can have the best website minesweeper, you can have the most impressive music, you can have the most polished sermon, but if it doesn't have the gospel at its heart, it will make not one jot of difference. You'll be clearing the way for a tank that's never coming. But if you only preach the cross, if you never give some thought to what people's objections to the gospel might be, brothers and sisters, you are going to drive over some mines and your shell will go astray. People won't hear you. It's only the gospel that makes an impact, but we need minesweepers too. We've got to care about that stuff, think hard about this stuff, and this passage is not an excuse not to do it. Let me close. I want you to look around in your mind's eye the makeup of your church. Maybe, just maybe, you feel a bit like the pastor of my church in Sydney. You look around and you think what an impressive bunch they are. Maybe you're like the mega church pastor from the conference that fictional Bill went to in Brisbane. But probably you're not. Probably in your mind's eye you're looking around at a church that looks much like St Average's Corinth. Well, friends, don't worry. There is just something intrinsically unimpressive about churches. A no amount of doctors or lawyers or hedge fund managers, whatever they are, will change that. Because churches are gatherings of failures. When you're inviting someone to church, you're inviting them to admit that they are a failure and to come and spend some time on a Sunday with some other failures. It will be tempting to all pretend how together we have it, to make our church more attractive to other together people. But remember, that's not what your church is. It's not a hotel. It's a hospital. And hospitals are for sick people. So let's never try and pretend otherwise. 
And do you know what? When we get that, we actually realise that people are far more open to that than we think. You show me the most outwardly together person you can think of. You scratch the surface with them for even five minutes and you'll see they're just as much a mess as the rest of us. They just drive a nicer car or have a few more letters after their name. We're all messes. Just some of us wear it more outwardly than others. Some of the most together-looking people I've ever met were the most relieved when they came to church with other people who weren't outwardly impressive because they'd finally found a place where they could drop their pretense. Everywhere I go, the family lunch, my work, my golf club, I've got to keep up this face. But now I can come to a place, maybe the only place I've ever been to, where I never need to pretend, where I can admit that I'm a failure because other people are happy to do it too. What good news that is for people. Strong and the weak. Well, we're going to get weak if we don't have some lunch. So why don't I pray? God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the message of the Gospel. That it is a foolish message on the outside that forms communities of foolish looking people and not many of us are that impressive looking and gosh, we feel that sometimes and yet, Father, we thank you that that again is fully intentional. That you do it to shame the strong, but also to make sure that none of us think that we are in your kingdom because of anything to do with us, but rather it all points towards your grace. Father, we pray on the one hand, please don't let us make the mistake of excusing us for sloppiness in this. Father, we want to work hard at making Jesus look as attractive as possible to people. And yet, Father, if everyone here is anything like me, we don't need to pretend to be weak. Even at our best, we're still weak. Please help us not to beat ourselves up about that or to think that we're somehow letting you down. But rather, that's actually a great evangelistic strategy because you save real people with real problems and real messes. And actually, that's everyone, whatever car they drive. Father, we pray that this year you would bring many, many, many more weak and strong people into our churches and they would find forgiveness and wholeness and healing and security, not in themselves, but in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.